Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpis. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Why download the app? Because life is messy. We get stressed, anxious, have trouble sleeping, work too hard, feel overwhelmed. We grieve, our hearts get broken, we worry about the state of the world, we meditate because we're human. Our app gives you hundreds of meditations from over 30 leading experts. It helps a lot. And you can now enjoy eight free meditations on Alexa. Just ask her to enable Meditation Studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We love having you with us. Today, our guest is Danny Shapiro, best-selling author of five novels and four memoirs, including Slow Motion, Devotion, and her most recent memoir, Hourglass, which puts a microscope on her own marriage. She explores how marriage is shaped by time and by the experiences we share. As a memoirist and writing teacher, Danny looks at how we make meaning of what happens in our lives and how we shape our experiences into story. Story, she says, often comes from the questions we ask ourselves. Danny is an amazing writer and storyteller, and meditation is part of her everyday ritual to stay grounded and centered, but also to tap into her inner landscape. If you love Danny, like most of us at Meditation Studio, she's teaching a workshop called The Stories We Carry, Meditation and Writing at Cropalo, the weekend of October 13th. Check out dannyshapiro.com for more information. Now, here's Danny. Danny Shapiro, it is such a pleasure to have you on Untangle today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start by getting a little background on you. And I know, you know, so many of our listeners know you, but I first fell in love with your writing with your first two memoirs, Slow Motion and Devotion. Can you just talk sort of a little open-ended about Slow Motion and Devotion and sort of what inspired you to write those books for those who are not? Great. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. So interesting because many people who discover me through Slow Motion actually don't know that I had written three novels prior to Slow Motion. and, And that's relevant because... I thought of myself entirely as a fiction writer. And and then there came this moment where I realized that my fiction was kind of being haunted by my autobiographical material, by something that had happened to my family and to myself in a period of time that was very dramatic and difficult. And I came to this realization, it was really a literary realization that I needed to almost heal that haunting by writing about that period of time directly in slow motion. And so I wrote slow motion really out of a feeling, almost like a curative, like this is going to really help and transform my fiction. And then I'll go back to fiction and I will never write memoir again. And just briefly for your listeners who who haven't yet read slow motion, it's about a period of time in which my parents were in a devastating car crash and my father died as a result of his injuries. And my mother was very badly injured. And I was this really messed up, you know, 23 year old kid, just 
really in no shape to face that kind of tragedy and that kind of reckoning. And it was the most painful thing that had ever happened in my life, but also something that was transformational. And I wanted to try to write about how the worst moment can also end up being the transformative moment. And that's really where that came from. And then it actually did do what I had hoped it would do. And I went on and wrote two novels after Slow Motion, my novels, Family History and Black and White. And I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life as a fiction writer. And then one day after my novel, Black and White, had come out and I was sort of waiting for the next novel to reveal itself to me, I was in the midst of my yoga practice one day. I was standing there in tree pose. Uh, I can picture exactly the little room where I was practicing. And suddenly the word devotion like showed up in front of my face and nothing like that had ever happened to me before. I don't tend to see words and that's not how titles or ideas come to me, but in that case, it really did. And I instantly understood that it meant that I was going to embark on another memoir. And this time it was really born out of a spiritual and most existential crisis that I found myself in as a woman in early midlife, as the mother of a young child. My, my son was asking me questions about what I believed. And I realized that I kind of opted out of thinking about what I believed. And, and it wasn't so much that I was looking for answers, but I felt like I wasn't up to the questions, you know, that he was asking me really deep spiritual questions the way like a six-year-old can. It's not that I didn't have answers for him. I, I couldn't meet him in that question. And so I embarked on this journey. You know, one of the things I realized when I was writing Devotion is there are, there are journeys you go on because you want to write a book. And then there are books that you write because you want to go on a journey mm. as a writer. And for me, I'm much more the kind of writer who would want to go on the journey and therefore the other, like the book becomes the way I can do that or the way of giving myself permission to do that. And, and that's what devotion was. It was just kind of investigative journalism of my own life in a way of my own spiritual life. Yet so interesting because you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family and then this pivotal moment of the accident that you write about in slow motion was you say transformational. So what sense did you make of that transformation? Like, did you give meaning to the accident? And then devotion is of course your quest for an understanding of your own spiritual presence in the world. How did those all, how did they all like mm. make meaning for you? Mm. That's a great question. I really adored my dad and the loss of him he was young. He was 63 years old when he died. And, mm. and I was young and messed up, as I mentioned. And so he never really got to see me grow up or to see what I might make of myself. And the great irony is that I don't know that I would have made of myself what I have had he not died, had I not gone through that loss. Because one of the things that happened almost instantly, I understood that to survive I had to make meaning of it. I couldn't have articulated that to you at the time, but that was a feeling that I had very powerfully. And I really internalized my dad. Like he became my true north in a way, my compass. And pretty much at every turn for quite a while until I had my own compass, I would kind of just quietly ask him what I should do. Or I'd think to myself, what would my father, what would he want me to do here? And so that became a way that I 
have found myself, like untangled myself, found my way out of this really devastating time. And at the time that my father died, I dropped out of college. I was in a really terrible, complicated, messed up relationship with a much older and very powerful married man, you know, checked every box of (laughs) not, not a good idea, every single box. And within six months of my father's death, I had extricated myself from that relationship, which was not easy to do. I had gone back to college and was finishing my senior year. I decided to stay at Sarah Lawrence where I was in school and go to graduate school. I was taking care of my mother whose body was physically shattered by the accident and was in physical rehab for a long time. And, you know, and I'm 23 years old, which I think back now, like how incredibly young that was. And I think it made me a writer in the sense that writing was the way that I made meaning out of the chaos. I somehow intuited, I'd always written, uh, but I didn't know that I could be a writer. I didn't know that anyone could be a writer. Just wasn't, I didn't know writers or artists really. And so there was this sense of finding the meaning through ordering it on the page and through shaping experience into a story. When you were writing slow motion, you talked a lot about all of the events that happened one right after each other. And you said your father was your North Star at that time. Was it because he was such a religious person or just that you adored him so much and wanted him as your guide? Great. No, it definitely was not because he was a religious person. That was a source of a lot of conflict between my father and me because he raised me in such a very rigid and strict way that didn't resonate with me. And it was also complicated because my mother was not religious, although she had agreed to raise me in an observant Jewish way. But, you know, they had a lot of conflict about that. And I was living in a non-Orthodox world and actually in a very non-Jewish world in a lot of ways. And so so the religious part was not what I felt connected to my father about. And I did, I loved him, but it, what it really, I think, was was a, f- a very powerful sense that he had been in various ways kind of wounded and unfulfilled, that he hadn't lived a very happy life, and that there was some way that he hadn't really been able to f- fulfill himself or his destiny. Or, I mean, I think religion gave him meaning in a very prescribed way. This is what he did because this is what his father did and this is what his grandfather did. And I think it it gave him a sense of order. One of the questions I had when I embarked on writing devotion was really what did religious adherence do for my father? He was devout, but he was also quite frightened and quite fragile. So what did that religious ritual do for him. I didn't see that it gave him strength or direction or comfort really. So I I wasn't going to be able to really find any answers or be able to ask him, but I wanted to enter into really thinking about that. And, but also back to your question about slow motion, you know, when I wrote slow motion, it was 10 years after my parents' accident. Mm. So I wasn't writing from the middle of it. I was writing from a place of having some distance and some perspective and some capacity to look at myself and who I was at that time with, I think, a certain amount of clarity. And I had questions there too. I think books always come out of questions for me. And a question I had was like sort of, 
who was that girl? Why was she so messed up? And what did that shock to her system do? You know, what was it that turned me around? And and I think also it's my way of honoring, mm-hmm. you know, I, my aunt, Shirley, my father's younger sister, who's still living, she's in her mid nineties. And she called me after she read devotion or she was actually in the midst of reading it. And she was crying. And she said, it's like a cottage for your father. And that was so meaningful to me, the idea that she really understood that I was honoring him, even though probably there's quite a bit that I've written about him. If he were living, he wouldn't approve of, (laughs) but if he were living, I wouldn't have written it. So, Wow. So let's talk about devotion for a second, because here you are, you know, you've, you'd already written your first memoir and, and many other fiction books, but this is really about this path to spirituality and how you make sense of what is the greater meaning of life. And did you, when you started writing, did you have some thoughts on where it would go? Did you already sort of, had you explored, like you you knew Judaism and you knew Buddhism, I think. Mm, you're asking such great questions. I mean, I, I had a very long time yoga practice, but I didn't recognize it as spiritual. I just practiced yoga and liked what it did for me physically and what liked what it did for me mentally in terms of space in my head. But I never really, I didn't think I had a right to think of it as a spiritual practice because I had been raised in such an all or nothing way. If I'm not an Orthodox Jew, then there's no other possibility for me. And it was the realization that that all or nothing way of thinking led me not to all, but to nothing. That really kind of was a big part of my embarking on the the writing of and the journey of devotion. But no, I didn't know what would happen. That was, you know, I never, I always say to my students, I mean, I teach memoir and I teach writing. And I, I always say to my students, if you know what happened, why tell the story? It's never just about like, here's this interesting thing that happened. I'm going to write it. It is a discovery. And I didn't know what would happen when I embarked on devotion. I had this sense that my teachers were all around me, but that I couldn't quite recognize them. You know, there's this beautiful Hebrew Sabbath prayer, the beginning of which uh, goes like this. It's the days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was walking sightless among miracles and I wanted to see what would happen if I opened my eyes. Extraordinary and transformative journey of writing that book is that that's really all I did. I opened my eyes and then all sorts of miraculous things happened and people entered my life who were not just my teachers, but were extraordinary teachers, like on the world stage, like people like Sylvia Borstein and Stephen Cope and this rabbi named Bert Vysotsky, who are some of the great modern teachers of yoga, of Buddhist meditation, and of Torah. I really didn't do anything other than just say yes instead of saying no and show up when I was invited places and recognize what was happening. So, and then the book is your your chronicle of that journey. Well, I was writing the book as I was going on the journey. I didn't, I didn't go on the journey and then sit back and think, now I'm going to write a book about it. I really, in fact, as I was writing it, I thought, oh my God, I may be making a huge mistake here. This may be of interest to absolutely no one. And it's coming out in these little pieces and it's all in these short passages. And I had never written that way before, but that was the way that it 
just really had to be written and structured. And if you had asked me at the time, I was, I really didn't know. I was just writing it as I was living it. Mm. And in retrospect, I have come to understand that spiritual journeys happen in fits and starts. They happen in a messy way. They happen with doubt and fear and misgivings and resistance. And the idea of kind of having written some sort of smooth narrative arc about my spiritual journey would have actually felt untruthful. But I couldn't have told you that at the time. I only understood that after I finished the book. Do you now, can you name your spiritual practice? My practices are eclectic. And that was one of the greatest takeaways of writing devotion for me was the sense that a spiritual practice could be built. It didn't only have to be inherited. It was really something I hadn't understood. And I felt that people who spoke like I'm speaking now and people who kind of did their own, like built their own spiritual practices were kind of woo woo, like mm-hmm. not, not like somehow not serious or I mean, whatever judgmental kind of feelings I had about it, I came to feel that I was missing out on the possibilities of creating a life of ritual and meaning that would be one that would be both meaningful and, and would work for me. I'm Jewish. I have a yoga practice. I have a meditation practice. I read deeply into spiritual thinkers of all different faiths. So I love what you're saying about spiritual practice can be created versus only inherited. Tell me a little bit about now your meditation practice and your yoga practice and how that influences your day-to-day life and your writing. Yeah. I mean, as someone who teaches writing, I now almost always lead meditations along with my teaching of writing and have developed ways to kind of combine meditation and then writing prompts and craft of writing because it's so important to me. So, I mean, in terms of just practical daily life, I begin my day with 20 minutes of meditation. I meditate in silence every morning. And if I skip a day or if I get caught up somehow in something before I do that, my day is not as rich in terms of my internal life, in terms of my ability to witness the world around me, to, yeah, I mean, writers and artists are witnesses. And in order to cultivate that witnessing quality, meditation and yoga are just key and utterly necessary for me. How does the silence help with the creative process? And and more specifically, how does it help us tap into the stories that we want to tell? You know, just this morning when I was meditating, I had this thought, then it was different. And I've read about this, but I've never quite had this thought in this way before, which was, I was doing what, what always happens, which was noticing myself thinking and then coming back to the breath. But then I had this moment where I thought, who's doing the noticing? Who's doing the noticing that I'm thinking? Because I'm thinking, but there's a deeper place within me that is noticing that I'm doing that and catching me in that moment and just reminding me to return to the breath. And I think that that noticer, that place, is such a deep and silent and profound kind of knowing that is also where creative life comes from. 
When I look back at my work now, my work over the past 25 or 30 years of writing, I see all sorts of things in my work, in my fiction and in my memoirs, that I, that I couldn't possibly have consciously known, but that I now see that I knew on some level. Like There's this really beautiful psychoanalytic term that I came across recently, which is the unthought known. Like what we know, but we can't think. Mm-hmm. And I think meditation brings us to that place and writing brings us to that place as well. I can't tell you how many times I have finished a book and thought, how did I do that? It's like, I say to my students all the time, you know, whenever you start a new piece of work, it's like you're climbing another mountain and you may be a very, very good mountain climber, but you know, so you've climbed Everest, but that doesn't mean you have any idea how to climb Kilimanjaro. You know, you're climbing, you're climbing a new mountain with new terrain. And, and I think in order to be able to do that, that trust of that very deep, quiet place and its riches it's, is so essential. You have a quote, I think it's on your website, where you say we carry our stories inside of us and some are easier to tell than others. And, you know, I can see that finding that place inside of you would be so powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yoga does that as well. And in, yeah. in yoga philosophy, it's called the samskaras and samskara variously translates into scars you know, and our stories are in some way our scars, some of them anyway, right. and, but, they, but they remain whole and complete. And we can, I was going to say find them, but it's not even finding them that would connote a kind of strain or effort. It's more that they're, that they're there if we get quiet enough to recognize them. Well, let's shift a little bit and talk about your third memoir. And, you know, you mentioned a little earlier that your books always come out of the questions that you have. And this book is about marriage, specifically your marriage. And you talk about like the sort of dizzying loops and ups and downs of life with a partner. What was your inspiration for writing this Mm. book? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it's scared the shit out of me. Can I say that? Writing the book, it's scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. it's scared. It's, yeah. And, I, and I have come to recognize that that's a good sign, mm-hmm. you know, that when something is really terrifying, it probably means that it's very alive in some way. But, you know, it scared me because I love my husband. I'm very content in my marriage. That doesn't mean it's remotely perfect or easy all the time. But, you know, I think that we're both in it, you know, for the long haul. And so what was I even contemplating by thinking I'm going to write about my marriage? I mean, usually when people write about their marriages, they're writing about it from a place of getting a divorce or having an affair or, you know, something dramatic and looking at it in retrospect. And I wanted, you know, in a similar way to when I wrote my memoir devotion, I wanted to write from within something as it was unfolding. And kind of in this case, you know, we were married 18 years at the time that I embarked on writing Hourglass. And that felt like a good long number, not as long as some friends of mine who've been married for 40, 50, 60 years, but, you know, a good long chunk and sort of wanting to write about what it is to walk alongside another human being over time, like what it is to grow alongside and against and with another person and how we grow at different rates and how we change and what is that dance of two people who are going through life together. That's what I was interested in. And 
because I am a memoirist, I suppose, I used my own marriage to explore those questions. You also say something like this in your book, that we're all in this crazy, unpredictable mess together. I mean, what was it like writing the book at the same time that you're living with your husband? And did it create conflict? What does it feel like Mm. to actually put a magnifying glass Mm. on your marriage Mm -hmm. and all the good and the bad and continue on with it? Yeah, that's a good phrase, magnifying glass, because that certainly was something that I felt. But first of all, when this thought I want to write or I need to write about my marriage or I need to write about marriage and that by doing that, that means my marriage occurred to me, the first thing I did was I was away and I called my husband and said, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And he gave me absolute carte blanche permission to write about us. And I wouldn't have written about us if he hadn't. But then during the process, because my husband's a writer as well, and my process is to share work with him as I'm writing it always has been since we've been together. And this was no different. I would read to him at the end of the day. And one of the things that that I realized fairly recently, I mean, the book just came out a few months ago, is that we were treating this no differently than any of my other books in terms of the way we would talk about it. He was interested in my writing the best book I possibly can, not whether he was being protected or whether, you know, what so-and-so might think. It was really, there were places, and one of these I actually write about in the book, where he pushed me to be harder on him, where he actually said, you know, I'm an okay guy, but you're making me out to be too good a guy, Mm -hmm. and pushed me to go further, and because he knew that it would make a more truthful and better and richer book. Yeah, he sounds very evolved in that way. I mean, you could listen through your ego or you could listen through this sort of bigger picture. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I mean, there was one passage that I wrote where I actually was nervous about reading it to him. It was just like a tough passage. And we were going somewhere that evening and I took the pages with me in the car. (laughs) There's no escaping in a car. And he was driving and I read him the passage and he paused and he said, did you think that would upset me? And I said, well, I didn't know. And he paused again and he said, but it's true. And so that for him was the higher value. He was not in any way being masochistic about this. Like, yeah, I was concerned about him and I was concerned about us. You know, I'm never concerned about myself because I'm the one doing it. I'm fair game for myself. Mm-hmm. But I, I really wanted to, I mean, the high wire act of writing Hourglass was that I wanted to be truthful and not betray. Sort of that beautiful piece of dharma is like, is it true and is it useful? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think it brought you closer in the end? You know, I really do. I recently completed this very extensive book tour and my husband was able to meet me at a few of the tour stops and and just kind of be there and be in the audience. And, you know, we would talk afterwards about the kinds of questions that people asked and what people said. He was just proud. I think my greatest fear came when I finished the book and I turned it in 
and turn my attention to the fact that it was going to come out in the world. And that once it did, I could not control how people would respond to it. What if they didn't like us? What if they didn't like my husband? What if they were critical in some way that I couldn't foresee? And that was something that was scary to me. And with, with only one or two notable exceptions, the reception to the book was so overwhelmingly positive and loving, both in terms of readers and critics. And Michael received lots and lots of emails from people who are close to him saying like, I love you more. And that meant so much to me because I didn't know if, if I would be judged or if we would be judged. But I think with, with several of my books, I've tackled some subjects that are kind of the ones that are a little verboten. The ones that, you know, I, I mean, in Hourglass, I tackle money as well. And that's something that people don't talk about. And it's scary, you know, money, marriage, spirituality. I mean, when, I, when devotion came out, I came to realize how hungry were, people were to talk about their spiritual lives because we don't sit down and do that over drinks or coffee. We don't do that even with our closest friends. It's something we, we hold very privately and yet we're hungry to talk about. In, in terms of, oh, this is a good, juicy idea, I'm going to write about it. It really came from my own hunger. Well, and I think your vulnerability, and I think people love that and they gravitate towards that authenticity and vulnerability, that humanness that connects us all because whether we share our vulnerabilities or we keep them private in our relationships and our families, they're there. And so I think you give people permission to feel real and mm -hmm. to maybe explore their own. You wrote in one of your blogs, I have spent too much of my life afraid, thinking small, keeping my dreams manageable, making sure not to ask or hope for too much. And then you talk about, well, if we don't dream big, we don't get hurt. But now here you have been so brave, <laughs> uh, revealing so much about yourself and your marriage and your life and you know, how has this whole, your contemplative and meditation practice really helped you to feel a little more fearless, a little more brave? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think before when I said I, I begin the day with those 20 minutes, I think that's a part of it as well. It's a very grounding and centering practice to return to the present moment. I don't think of myself as brave I'm as fearful as the next person. I guess I am propelled by a kind of attempt to tell a truth, not yeah. like the truth with a capital T, but you know, tell a truth, my truth. And I'm very liberated by the response. Like to go back to devotion for a second, when I was writing that book and I thought, now I really be, I may be writing a book that no one will read. And instead, that's the book that landed me sitting there with Oprah. And, right. um, and so many people continue to come to that book that I really feared would be like this unicorn. Because everyone, whether they come from a religious background or no religion or they're atheists or they're spiritual. We all really feel the same feelings and have, you know, inner landscapes that are very particular, but at the same time are so similar in other ways. And what I'm feeling is we are all the same. Mm -hmm. We are all one. It makes me feel so infinitely more connected to humanity. Mm -hmm. 
you put that in such a beautiful way because I do think your writing has so much that connects all of us. Danny, thank you so much for being on our show today. Patricia, thank you. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Danny for being with us today. For more information on her books and workshops, go to dannyshapiro.com and check out her new show on Facebook called Office Hours, where she will answer your questions about writing and story. If you enjoyed this podcast, can you take a minute to rate and review it? And if you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email me at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to download Meditation Studio in the App Store or on Google Play. We'll see you next time. Thank you.